No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello, and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their own nonfiction piece on the page, then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. In the first half of our May Day show, recorded live at the Astoria Bookshop, Alice Nascoto is forced to listen to an unexpected SOS of the heart. Here's M. Sky Holly reading Vessel in Distress. Story of the night, which Allison has written, and that Sky is going to perform. Uh, I like to do a little Q and A. So if you like to rise for your yes, <laughs> I like to do a little Q and A with the author, and so that we can hear a little bit of their voice before their partner shares their story with everybody. My question for you, Allison. Yeah. Allison uh, works for Newtown Literary. You work as an editor, and I also know that you work at the Center for Fiction. I do. Which for over 200 years has been located in Manhattan, right. but is now moving to Brooklyn. Oh! Yeah. Which, <laughs> I thought she was going to say Astoria. Strong feelings. But I imagine that we're in Astoria. I imagine that as being like the like the very worst version of like, oh my gosh, I have to clean, I have to move and clean out my apartment, and what am I going to do with all these books? What has uh-huh. been like? I know you're you're relatively new. Like, what is what is the grit that's going into this move that you guys oh are working God. on? Uh, well, we're we're already out of the building, but at the end of last year, I had to basically supervise a move of books that had been in place for that long, since the 1930s. Wow. And wow. So I was finding all kinds of gems and mm-hmm. really old, dusty things that had been falling apart, but it was very cool. What's your favorite thing that you found? Um, I found a first edition of T.S. Eliot's poems. Wow. Ooh. Wow. Which, price, and it was worth about $6,000. Wow. So, uh, great way to start us off with great <laughs> spirit. Uh, so we're going to hear Vessel in Distress, written by Allison Escoto and performed by Sky Holly. Vessel in Distress. Here's the thing about your heart. Without you noticing, it normally just does its work. It sets the pace, directs traffic through 60,000 miles of vessels, and propels you forward through life in fist-sized pumps. You take it for granted and only really pay mind to it in a figurative, poetic kind of way. When you're in love, when you're nervous, when you're sad. During those times, you not only give it all your attention, but you assign poetry to it. You rhapsodize or wallow in it. It breaks in half, or it fills to bursting. And okay, maybe once or twice a year you pay it lip service. I'll pump you full of energy. I'll eat salmon and drink red wine. I'll stop smoking and working so hard. But you never mean it. Or you only half mean it. And then there's the moment when, after ignoring the advice of centuries of poets, decades of teen movie plots, and the messages of every easy listening song ever written, (laughs) you're forced to give in and listen to your heart. (laughs) Because one day, you might feel moments of uneasiness, and you can't pinpoint exactly why. Mostly because they're barely noticeable. Almost like the memory of being uneasy or an echo you hear from far away. Throughout the day, you might feel momentarily confused and on edge. But the feelings will just write themselves. 
and a few days will pass by normally, but then it will come back again, and suddenly you will realize you can actually hear it. The erratic Morse code flutter coming from your chest. Too much coffee, not enough sleep, too much work, sure, but totally fine. That's what you try to tell yourself. At least that's what I did. I turned 40 in 2016. I could probably end the story there. <laughs> 40 is the punchline year. And you remember 2016, right? That catastrophe that could have been accompanied by a Greek chorus. When the world at large seemed brokenhearted, with pop culture heroes dying and the large-scale circus that was a presidential election. It was a year when it seemed that everyone around me was dealing with bespoke tragedy. The world was thrown into chaos with one bad thing happening after another, and just when I thought I had my millionth thought of, it can't get any worse, both of my beloved cats died, one after the other. When I look back on my life through old and squinted eyes for the highlights, the best ofs, the greatest hits, 2016 is not going to make the cut. <laughs> I'm actually hoping that by the time I'm an old lady, We'll have developed a mind erase procedure because I'll take a hard pass on 2016. <laughs> Throughout all the turmoil of that year, I did my best just to power through it all. I made plans and small talk, trying to ignore the world on fire outside and the inside of my empty house. And all the while, that strange off feeling would ebb and flow. Then one day, I'm sitting at my desk after lunch when I feel certain I'm going to die. I feel like my heart is clawing its way out of my chest like a trapped animal. I'm dizzy, completely out of breath. It feels like something is chasing me. It's not a wave of panic. It's a never-ending pounding of waves that is no end in sight. I'm alone in the room and panic takes over. I have a fleeting thought about how ridiculous, how ridiculous it is to panic over panicking. <laughs> and it feels suddenly like I'm lost in some weird, absurd play. I stagger up from my chair, holding onto the edge of my desk as I make my way to the next room. I know I have to get out. I can't hear anything but the loud and fast pounding of my heart. I lurch forward as though I'm trying to exit my own body or somehow transmit its distress call into the next room so that someone else can hear it. I pass by a group of coworkers who are chatting and making plans about happy hour after work and I want to scream to let them know I'm in trouble. But I find myself completely unable to make a sound. So I keep walking past them, trying my best to catch up to my breath. By the time I get to the other side of the building, my heart slows down, the feeling starts to subside and the world seems to stop shaking. I wasn't prepared for how difficult it would be to describe what I felt to the army of doctors I saw later that afternoon or during the weeks that followed. When the cardiologist asked me to describe my symptoms, I couldn't put it into words. Maybe because it had only lasted a few minutes and then went away as though nothing had happened. I wanted to tell him that in the weeks before this episode, I hadn't been feeling myself, but the only words that were coming to me were vague, not really concrete just like the feelings had been. I had the odd idea that if I didn't describe my symptoms clearly, it would seem like I was lying, that no one would believe me. This was a completely foreign emotion for me. 
I've always felt confident in explaining my feelings, but sitting in that doctor's office felt like I had been pushed into the ocean and was adrift, unable to tell anyone where I was. After the initial x-rays, blood tests, physical exams, stethoscope prodding, and several abysmally inadequate answers later, I was sent home wearing a Holter monitor, my chest covered in sticky round electrodes like a green screen actor. During that following week, I experienced no panic, no shortness of breath. It was like I had spotted a shark fin break the ocean surface in the distance, only to have it completely disappear by the time everyone else looked. Supraventricular tachycardia. <laughs> My cardiologist let the words out in a steady, confident beat, as though they were normal words. <laughs> I had worn the monitor for a week by then and was sitting in his office while he was avoiding eye contact. I'm sorry, what? Super... I wouldn't have been able to finish even if I had tried. He wasn't looking at me anyway. He was reading my chart, oblivious to my confusion. Superventricular tachycardia. <laughs> Rapid heartbeat. It's very common. Again, the words came to him as if they were something people said in everyday conversation. Very common. To feel like you might die at random? I thought that, but I didn't dare say it out loud, afraid I would sound stupid. Your heart had 15 episodes of rapid heartbeat during the week. Were you running on a treadmill at any point? What's a treadmill? <laughs> Instead, I said, um, no. I really had done the absolute minimum amount of activity during the week following that first incident. But I felt nothing. There was no way those results were accurate, right? But this condition can just appear without anyone knowing why, like a mysterious random eye twitch. There are certain triggers, stress being one, and it can happen all the time, whether you feel it or not. And it happened to me 15 times in one week. Among many other things, my heart is a sneaky bastard. <laughs> I always gave myself more credit than I deserved when it came to handling stress. I was convinced that as long as I wasn't balled up in the corner of a darkened room somewhere, as long as I could still feel a steady pulse at the base of my uneven lifeline, I was totally okay. As long as I had all my stuff together, that stress was something that happened on the outside and had very little to do with me. So I continued my routine of going to work and back again, worrying most of the day about pretty much everything, but leaving that worry to the sidelines a place where I could always kind of see it, but not really look at it directly. Apparently, my heart was not informed of this routine. It was sending me messages. No, it was broadcasting messages so loudly that I couldn't ignore them. In the middle of all this hyper-concentration on my heart and its distress signals, I find that I dream in vivid images. In one dream, I'm getting a chest x-ray and watching myself from just outside the room. When the doctor turns the machine on, the room is filled with fading yellow light. The X-ray machine transforms into a sepia-drenched film, and my heart doesn't appear suspended in the middle of my body like a day-glow centerpiece to what it normally does in an X-ray. Instead, it's held in place by vintage-looking, worn leather straps and belted buckles. These straps wrap several times around my heart, squeezing it tight as small droplets appear from various points on the violently quivering muscle. When I wake up from this dream, I'm not alarmed or scared. I'm strangely sad. 
This is either because my subconscious can't help but be very obvious and heavy-handed with metaphors, or because the previous weeks had reminded me that we are all completely beholden to our bodies, and there's very little we can do to control what happens inside them. We can put less pressure on them, we can give them release and relaxation, we can sit up straight at our desks and limit our poisons, but we have to follow our body's leads. We have to keep a lookout and decode the signals sent out from within. What I have is mild and something a person can live with, as long as, as, long as you make peace with the notion that there will be episodes arriving at random during which you are positive you're going to leave this earth in a frenzy of panic. Stress has to be whittled down to a small nub. You should live without alcohol and caffeine and sugar and joy and happiness. <laughs> <laughs> While there are medications and surgeries, I've chosen to just live with it. I'm learning. Learning to come up for air every now and again to keep my eyes on the horizon. My heart still talks to me sometimes with confidence and positivity, sometimes stupidly drunk on infatuation, often very loudly and with anxiety. The episodes have become rare, but when I notice the radio frequency change, when the faint echo of a transmission is trying to get through, I stop what I'm doing, breathe deeply, and I listen. Thank you. Switching it up, M. Sky Holly goes back to school to receive her MFA and learns the difference between the family you're given and the family you make. Alice Nascoto reads Higher Degrees of Grief. Very excited to have Sky here as we both, I don't, I don't think we were ever in at the same time, but we both did the same MFA program with Fairleigh Dickinson University. Yeah, but did you ever, did you ever go to Roxton? Okay, so a big part of the program, what drew me to the program was a low residency program, so you would do these writing residencies and then go back to your real life and do a lot of it online, but the winter residency was at Roxton College, this is like old-fashioned, like Downton Abbey looking place in England, uh, which I got to go to twice, so I was just wondering, did you ever have any, any Roxton adventures, any... Any yeah. England adventures that stood out to you? Yeah. <laughs> I was a giggle right away, that's a good sign. One thing that was kind of adventurous was getting locked in my room. <laughs> um, and I remember, I can't remember his name, but... Oh, oh that guy. <laughs> this guy, the first day, they bring you into this fancy room, and this guy gives you a speech about basically how the whole place could go up in seven minutes. Right. Like, any, anything is so old. Yeah, so there's all these lockdown procedures. So you have seven minutes to evacuate if such anything should happen. So I was locked out of my room somehow. I'm just sitting like, you know, I'll be the first one to go. And so my mentor, Minna, is arguing with one of the maintenance persons saying, you've got to get her out of there. And someone says, Ma'am, I think you're going to have to jump out the window. <laughs> and I'm looking out the window, and it's really high, and I'm like, I don't think I can jump out the window. And then I come back and say, do I really have to jump out the window? <laughs> and like, yes, yes, you have to. What if something happens? And then Minna is arguing back and forth with this guy, like, no, she can't jump out the window, but I would do it. 
And so they finally get me out, and she's asking me, are you okay, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. She's like, what were you doing? I said, I'm just staring out the window. <laughs> my bed. Then she says, yeah, I didn't really want you to do that. You might get hurt. But she said, I would have done it because I think it's cool. We're going to hear Allison read your story, Higher Degrees of Grief, written by M. Sky Holly and read by Allison. Higher degrees of grief. I'm a sucker for graduations. I bop, I bop my head to pomp and circumstance like it's a billboard hit. If you find that strange, wait until the star-spangled banner is sung. My heart bumps thunderously inside my chest when the, whenever the soloist is introduced and walks across the stage. I'm excited, I'm nervous. Many have succeeded and many have failed miserably in their attempts to get it right. Even though I know I will never belt this out to an audience, and for good reason too, I want it done right. Every spring, I look forward to the invitations to commencements of all kinds. From preschool to med school, I'm down to attend them all and savor every moment. Considering my enthusiasm for all things ceremonial, I found myself dreading the very thought of graduating with my master's degree. When I was accepted into the MFA writing program, creative writing program at Fairleigh Dickinson University, I blushed. I remember my cheeks feeling an instant rush of warmth. Then I gasped. Then I said, thank you. I should have said thank you first. My manners were probably blushing too. It took all of me a few minutes to accept what was actually happening. My wishes of delving into literary spaces and testing my creative limits had been granted. When the director of the program notified me over the phone, I was elated and grateful. I emailed her the very next day to ask her if this was really happening. She replied back and said, it is, it's real, and congratulated me. After her phone call, the first call I made was to Kevin. Hey, Sky, how's it going, he said. I slowly shared the news with him, hearing it out loud for the second time, but the first time from my own mouth. I got in, Kev. I'm going to Fairleigh Dickinson, I said. All right, of course you did, Sky. You're the real deal, Kevin said. I'm really proud of you, Sky. I can't wait to tell Janet. We've got to celebrate, he said. Kevin loved to celebrate, and that was one of the things I loved about him. He was cheerful 24-7, and his enthusiasm for any milestone in my life was met with the same vigor as any small step in my life. A couple of days later, we spoke again, and his wife, Janet, reiterated to me how proud Kevin was. He keeps talking about it, Sky. Janet said, you did good, real good. Kevin's so happy he can't stop thinking about it. We told Rich and Gary and they're excited too, Janet said. We knew you could do it. I shared the news with my immediate family members next. And the reception was kind, but it couldn't compete. It couldn't compare with the hoopla Kevin was making about it. That's probably why I called Kevin first. As a fellow writer, I knew Kevin would get it. My family was polite about my good news and I'm sure there were words of congratulations in there. But truth be told, as a family, we were challenged as a whole on how to celebrate things or people. That's another story. Ask me later. But I know who my family is and their intentions. It's not personal. We were just brought up in survival mode. And as a result, celebrating anything was always a bit awkward. My parents split up when I was three, so I have no memory of them being married and living together. I have no idea if there were any celebratory moments then. I doubt it because there didn't seem to be any traces of anything when he left. There were no silly rituals. He didn't leave behind any traditions to carry on other than the loudness of his silence. 
There was nothing significant to remember or hold on to other than the enduring presence of his absence, a void of questions unanswered. My mother worked hard, as hard as she could for us to have the basics. She owned a home and kept us safe. We never went on vacation, ever. That was a luxury. Living from one paycheck and having enough for food, shelter, and clothing were our rewards. When birthdays came around, sometimes there were gifts, sometimes there weren't. Same thing with holidays. As adults, my siblings and I exchanged gifts, but we never wait for the day of the occasion to arrive. We rushed to deliver the gifts as soon as we purchased them, just to get it over with. <laughs> Even if we spent a lot of time and effort into choosing just the right gift, it's almost a burden to just hold on to it. We didn't know how to do it right. It was a struggle. For Kevin, this was second nature. Kevin loved to celebrate his life, his family, his marriage, and Kevin loved to celebrate me. In the weeks before my birthday in November, I would get a check in the mail. The memo usually read, cab fare. <laughs> Kevin suffered from arthritis, among many other medical conditions he was challenged with and could not drive. I did not have a car either, but he always wanted me to be comfortable. He would give me cab fare to meet him and Janet at a restaurant or one of their favorite bars in Queens for my birthday. This was his way of treating me like a princess, door-to-door -door service. He did the same whenever his anniversary rolled around, so my son and I could join him and Janet for dinner and Black Forest cake. Checks for cab fare also came in the mail when there was a play he wanted us to see, or to get to his house for movies on New Year's Day, or lime green cupcakes on St. Patrick's Day. Every, sh every art show my son had, he was there stuffing his hands in his pockets to take out some wrinkled bills to buy my son's watercolors and sketches. I still imagine him in my mind walking out of the studio, bragging to Janet that Silas was a young Picasso. I'm just gonna say it, he said to me when I graduated from college. I couldn't be more proud of you if you were my own daughter. But I wasn't his daughter. Kevin and I were friends, best friends, he would point out to his friends when he introduced me. We met at work when I was a receptionist for a pipe and valve company, and he was a salesman. We sat a few feet away from each other in the office suite and became fast friends. In my heart, I know we became fast family as well. I was in my late teens and he was in his 50s. We struck up a conversation about books one afternoon, a few days after he was hired. He was reading a Stephen King novel, and I was writing a poem in a journal. We both picked up our heads around the same time and looked at each other. What you writing, Sky? He asked. A poem. I smiled. His eyes widened and he nodded his head. I love poetry. Janet writes too. She writes children's stories, he said quickly. I remember his grayish blue eyes sparkling with excitement. From then on, Kevin brought the New York Times into work every day for me. We would split the sections we loved the most. In between taking calls or separating staff mail at my desk, I pored over the arts and culture section. I'd give it to Kevin when I was done, and we would talk about it over lunch. Without fail, whenever he came to work, when he walked in with a little bop in his step, he would slide the time section over my desk and say, hot off the presses. He told me that I'd be in the times one day, and he'd be glad to say he knew me when. On the day of my graduation, I reminded myself to buy a copy of the New York Times at Penn Station. My son was coming with me to the ceremony, my mother told me the week before that she didn't think she'd be able to make it on account of her health, which was in flux. I insisted that there was no way for her to predict how she would feel in a week, a week in advance, but I decided not to press the issue. 
Her health was going through some mysterious changes, and her disposition was too. Despite all of that, I knew deep down that going to graduations just wasn't her thing. If it were, I am sure nothing would hold her back. But why force yourself to go somewhere for something you don't really care about? Not that she didn't care about me, that's not what I meant. I'm the kind of person who loved to celebrate things, little things. A card for any occasion or a card for no occasion at all. My mother just wasn't like that. I just backed off. But I was still hurt. I then asked my brothers to attend right after. My mother turned me down. I didn't want to hear another no, so I thought I'd make it easier for them. There is another graduation after this one. It's smaller, not at the MetLife Arena. It's for our department. It'll be on the weekend so you don't have to miss work, I told them. I adore graduation speeches. I knew my brothers didn't. Instead of hearing a quick no or an excuse as to why they may not come, I tried to offer an alternative that might seem more appealing or at least less boring. They both agreed to come to the MFA creative writing ceremony and dinner in August. I was spared. I didn't have to beg anyone. I didn't have to face rejection. Okay. Only it was not okay. My sister said no too. Told me that she never knew I was, she never knew I was in grad school. What do you mean you never knew? What did you think I was doing for the past two years? <laughs> you never told me about any grad school. You told me you were taking a class, she said. A class? I never just, I never said I was just taking a class. What about the trips I made to England? I told you I was in a program, I said via text message. She responded that I never told her any such thing. She said I didn't, she said I didn't think she was important enough for me to share her life with her and that she didn't belong at the ceremony. Ask me later. Our relationship is another long story. <laughs> she told me I should go ahead and invite all my friends because those were the people I really wanted to attend. I didn't really invite them either. I gave them the same alternative option I gave my brothers. I didn't want anyone to feel obligated to come and show support. I left voicemails, text messages the night before the ceremony, and I purposely didn't respond when they tried to get in contact with me. I made sure my messages did not include where the ceremony would be. The last thing I wanted was for any of them to show up at the MetLife Arena with cards or balloons. I mean, I wanted to attend, but I didn't want to attend just as much. As the winter months rolled by, the thought of it loomed in my mind. While my family and close friends knew I was in grad school, I kept the details to a minimum. I assumed that people weren't interested. I tend to believe that people would rather hear about the glory than the guts. Did anyone really want to hear how exhausted I was for the past two years? I didn't think so. Would my drained bank account be as entertaining in conversation <laughs> as my trips to England for my program's writing residencies? Of course not. Isn't talking about oneself all the time pretentious anyway? The truth is, whenever I thought about grad school, the first thing that came to mind was sadness. Why would I want to share that? I knew it would be a hard day for me, and I don't do hard very well. Vulnerability and grace rarely are the dispositions I can exhibit at once. That requires a level of multitasking I am incapable of. But I wanted them there. I wanted my family and my friends to tell me that they'd be there no matter what. I'll be there with bells on, Kevin said, when I invited him to my college graduation. My heart, already broken, was now being stretched, pulled, stepped on, and ripped apart. I didn't invite Kevin to my MFA graduation. Kevin was gone.
Kevin passed away a few months after I started the program. If Kevin couldn't be there, I didn't want anyone else there either. I didn't want the hugs and kisses from my loved ones. I didn't want the awkward congratulatory words that came from a genuine place, from my brothers. I did not want to feel the largeness of anyone's love because it would only magnify the absence of Kevin. And Kevin's love was all that. It was spectacular. It was like Christmas and your birthday happening at the same time with a Thanksgiving meal to top it off. <laughs> Thanksgiving was our favorite holiday, just remembering. I only wanted my son there, one, because I thought it would be inspirational for him to hear the truth, to see the fruit of my achievements, and two, he's much taller than I am and pretty strong. If I cried myself into hysterics, he could carry me out of the place. <laughs> I knew he hated speeches too, but he loved me. And three, Kevin loved my son Silas to the core. Kevin would have wanted him there. So on that hot May day in 2017, we set out without Kevin. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.